I'm a big fan of Arby's. I'm a big fan of roast beef in general. Going through the drive-thru, you know, and you, you order a combo, but I don't know, the, the number one, sandwich, fries, and drink. Get to the window, and I'm like, you know, there's no fries in here. And they were like, well, we didn't charge you. And I was like, right, well, but I ordered fries. And they were like, yeah, but we didn't charge you. It's one of these scenarios. It's like, do I need to like just circle the restaurant again? We can't allow people to have any like common sense. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. All right. Thank you, Jordan Howard from OM Healthcare for that introduction. Yes, you are listening to the Touchpoint Podcast, and I'm one of your co-hosts, Chris Boyer. And as always, I'm joined by my other co-host, Reed Smith. Reed is a digital marketing specialist, strategist, and expert. He spends a lot of time working with hospitals and health systems around the country on how to optimize the way they are using digital, social media, websites, etc. to help achieve their business goals goals. You can find out a lot about him by going to his website, socialhealthinstitute.com, or you can find out what he's thinking about by following him on Twitter or scoping him out on LinkedIn and some of those other social channels. Reed, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. How's it going? That is Chris Boyer. And, you know, it's fun having other people read the intro. Maybe we should have other people introduce us. You can find Chris online at Chris Boyer on all the social channels. ChristopherBoyer.com is the website in which you'll find a little more about him and be able to track him down and read some of the things that he's written on hospitals, healthcare, social media, digital marketing, all that kind of fun stuff. And just as a side, uh, this very day that this podcast actually comes out, we release these on Wednesdays. So this very Wednesday, we're also doing a webinar on podcast. You can find out more over at socialmedia.mayoclinic.org. This episode of the Touchpoint Podcast is sponsored by Loyal. Loyal's AI-driven platform provides health systems with the tools needed to amplify patient feedback and guide patients through their digital journey. For more information, please visit loyalhealth.com. To your earlier point, Reed, you said maybe we should outsource the people doing introductions of us. Maybe we should learn how to outsource the entire podcast to other people, right? So that we don't have to do anything. That would be a lot easier. Yeah, we could just have like a, um, a sit-in host. Like, oh, it's a guest host this week. And then like, we just don't ever come back. <laughs> just a guest host forever. No, this, this is a lot of fun. So thank you all for listening. Be sure to rate and review us when you subscribe over there at iTunes. We certainly appreciate it and love to hear from you. Absolutely. Well, Reed, today is episode 41, and we're going to be talking about consumerism in healthcare, which is a topic that is sort of an undercurrent of all of the podcasts that we do mm-hmm. when we talk about digital, and it's come up often. You know, this whole concept of consumerism is being used a lot to describe how hospital marketers and patient experience is being redefined within the hospital and health system. To some degree, this is one of those buzzwords that we've used the last couple of years that's actually coming to fruition as far as Mm -hmm. 
it actually is a real thing that people are doing. So mm-hmm. maybe let's talk a little bit about that or define that before we get too far into this on exactly what we mean by consumerism as it relates to health. Well, anytime we say we're going to define something, you know, we'll return to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And I pulled up the definition of consumerism on Wikipedia. And there were two things in there that I thought maybe we could look at. So Wikipedia first says that consumerism is a social and economic order and ideology that encourages the acquisition of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. Okay. So not that we didn't consume healthcare before, but this is more along the lines of now we are running that process, I guess. We're the ones deciding where to go and how often and how much versus it was a reactionary piece before. Maybe we're consuming, but we're the ones actually researching and doing and buying. It's actually allowing people to take a more active role in their purchasing. The other part of that sentence, though, in ever increasing amounts, does that mean once we start down the consumerism path, the toothpaste is out of the tube? We're no longer turning back. It's just happening. And now it's we got to retool the entire delivery network around consumerism. To some degree, that is due to digital. What would have driven the consumerism or what did drive the consumerism historically was word of mouth. Especially from a preventative or wellness standpoint, that's an easy case to make. You ought to have this done. You ought to go look at this. Hey, remember, when you turn this age, you you need to have these things done. Now with with digital, we're a little more in control and there's more information to consume. I I agree 100%. There's another line in the definition in a separate sentence about economics. It says, in economics, consumerism may refer to economic policies that emphasize consumption. And when we talk about in economics, we could even may even go further to say in our new healthcare marketing and patient experience efforts, we need to develop policies that emphasize making that consumption, uh, which is a weird word to think about in healthcare, much more optimized. Basically, it's like we don't we don't really have a choice or a say in this. The trains left the station, so we've got to now understand historically you marketed to, or maybe the you know some of this was driven via physician utilization, some of that kind of stuff. Now we got to take into account a whole other population as it relates to how people consume our services. It changes the way we have to really look at and structure the future of our care delivery. What I'd like to do, Reed, is kind of dive in a little bit into what it means to be a healthcare consumer or for hospitals. What does that mean, being a consumer? It can mean a number of things, I guess. I mean, obviously, the most straightforward scenario is you, a person, go have healthcare administered. Could be more on the reactionary side, so you get the flu and so you go to the doctor. Or it could be more uh, preventative wellness or even elective stuff in you know the ortho world or, or something. But, but you are going exchanging dollars for services. You're buying health care. Right. Right. So you're consuming it. You're purchasing it, the services, because you need it or you right. want it. Right. You know, in some cases. And that's fine, you know, when you want to go out and get it, just like you would on Amazon, you want to go out and get something. But then there are some consumers that are unwilling consumers, or I wouldn't say unwilling, but they're not voluntary consumers. They may have a chronic care condition. A chronic care condition, or maybe even the actual person buying the healthcare, so to speak, as part of the care team. Somebody's daughter 
they're making the decision that this individual needs to now move into a long-term care setting or something to that effect Mm -hmm. that that person would not have actively done and may even still be against even in the process at that very point. Yet they're still faced with making consumeristic choices, even though they may unwittingly go down that choice, down that path. The other part of it is, is that maybe the market, the open market is not that open. If they're, let's say, for example, they're on a particular type of medication and their insurance only does this copay for their prescription, they're not in control of being able to go out and shop for the best price. So you're not gonna go say, okay, well, Apparently, I do need a knee replacement. Let me find the best price. Because who knows what in the world any of this stuff costs. Unlike Amazon, you don't have insurance to offset the cost of you buying things on Amazon. That's right. So insurance kind of muddies the waters a little bit. Because even things like auto insurance are a little more straightforward in the sense of what you're on the hook for. It's a cleaner defined scenario. Even auto insurance, Reed, if I work for a company, you only have one time a year where you can actually make changes changes to your healthcare policy right. through open enrollment. But with auto insurance, I could go today and go switch auto insurances if I get a better deal. No problem. Yeah, you see a commercial for the competitor and you're like, that, that sounds neat. And so you go talk to them and they're like, yeah, I mean, we, it's going to be less a month or six months or however you pay. You know, And we can do this other thing. And so you can move around based on benefit or feature set or you know whatever it may be. So you have a limited market. You have not a lot of tr- transparency in terms of price, not a lot of options often when you're on a particular insurance policy. You also mentioned who is the consumer? Well, think about this. When you're in a hospital or a health system, sometimes your consumer is that voluntary physician in the marketplace, making your facility the place where they want to refer business and and even conduct surgical procedures or treatments or, or what have you. So now your consumer can also extend towards physicians. Yeah. I mean, especially in states like Texas or other states where you're not employee, the hospital do not employ the physician. Probably historically that that really probably in those states have has really worked that way. Consumerism piece has been in place, but it's only been directed at physicians because they're the ones, you know, guiding care. They're not paying for it per se, but they're the ones prescribing it at least. And they become your word of mouth referral at the front end, right? With that consumer Right. And so you look at how many, you know, you know, all these hospitals have physician sales, physician liaisons, you know, whatever you want to call them. But basically folks that go and call on all these physicians and lobby, sell service, customer service related activities with these folks to make sure they have what they need. They'll bring their patients to your facility. There's more nuance to the whole consumeristic model, so to speak, in healthcare. Consumers can be once, twice, even three times removed from the purchasing path. There could be completely different constituents. I guess in in traditional marketing, you might call that like channel marketing, where you, you're marketing mm. to a particular channel that's the entry point into your services. So that you know, like Amazon is a channel to a lot of different individual products. You might think about it that way. Yeah, it it is a channel strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a couple of complexities, obviously. I mean, we've talked about those. Now we're having to build on different ways to sell the same thing. There are different things that are important to folks. Sometimes it's price. Sometimes it's, you know, some of their quality metrics. And again, digital is emphasizing a lot of that, making it easier to find those things and research those things and compare those things. 
Sure is. So one other thing before we kind of move on and talk about like the state of healthcare consumerism today, think about this. Who is the number one payer, you know, around hospitals in the United States? It's the government, right? Through Medicare and Medicaid. Right. Typically, right? Right. right. So now... Would you also include the government or sort of more of a legislative consumer as being part of that? Because quite frankly, they can drive the price. Being your your, you know, your biggest customer of your hospital system, they do drive the pricing of your products and services. They are. And, that, and that's such a weird scenario. Otherwise, if you're the one that originates your product, you're the one that probably also determines the cost. Now, you may go out of business. Because you want too much money. I mean, there's obviously a market that's going to determine if you build widgets, you can charge whatever you want, I guess. But, you know, people are going to buy them or not buy them based on supply and demand. But to have a complete separate entity determine what you're going to get paid. You know, we always always joke in the hospital, it's like, it doesn't matter what I charge you. Like, it makes no <laughs> difference. I can charge you a million dollars for this MRI scan. Like, makes no difference. We're only going to get paid... X amount of dollars, you know, whatever the contracted amount is through some of these different scenarios, whether it's commercial insured or some sort of a government payment. And on the flip side of that, it's, you know, one of the only places that there is no price. So it's like, how much does this cost? And it's like, ah, we can't tell you. We have no idea. Can we take a little aside and talk about how hospitals try to optimize how much money they get back? Yeah. I don't want to throw them under the bus, but there is a whole side of the business, which is how do we use those codes that the government sets up, those ICD-10 codes, and how do we optimize billing in such a way that we could get reimbursed the most? We're misincentivized on a lot of that stuff. So it's like if we just did this one other thing... Or if we just did that, we could add this code to the bill, you know, kind of a thing. I mean, it's such a strange deal. And then, and it makes it really hard when like, you know, several of the hospitals I work with are uh, in states or towns even that border another country, specifically Mexico. They get questions all the time about, hey, how much is it to have a baby? Because you've got people that live in Mexico and they want to drive across the border and have their child. And it's like, how much is it? Um, I don't know. I have no idea how much it is. And not only do I not know how much it is, I have no way to know, or I don't even know who to ask. Now, granted, I, that's that's maybe a little extreme. There are, you know, especially those some of those types of procedures, labor and delivery. You know, there is a cash price, so to speak. It's just weird. And now, so if we talk about consumerism in the way that consumerism is traditionally defined, think about it as like, you know, and a lot of people make parallels to Amazon, right? We need to become more Amazon or more Uber focused or what have you. Could you imagine if Amazon had to, A, market to a variety of different stakeholders, not only the person that's actually going to place the order, but maybe the influenced purchaser, like the rest of the family, I guess it kind of does that. But if they also then had their pricing set to a certain extent, by the government. And then once you place an order, they take some time to figure out how they can maximize the billing so that they could get the most amount of money out of you. That would sound like it wouldn't work in the retail space. Yet in healthcare, that's kind of the reality we face. Well, yeah. And imagine a lot of those people that get your product, but ultimately are not going to pay you. There's a whole nother scenario there of Gimtala law and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, if people present in the ER and it checks these boxes, you, you have to treat them. It's illegal not to provide service. You're not going to get paid on that. Then that feels like on the back end, on the people that do have commercial insurance, 
of like, how do we optimize this bill? Because we're having to try to offset all this charity care or, you know, bad debt. I want to refer to an advisory board research study that's been done that actually shows some of the threats to the core of the provider healthcare market. They came out with, there were six main things in this research that they did that shows that the traditional growth formula in healthcare, the way that we marketed before and the way we have to market in the future, is facing six areas that are weakening it considerably. Shifting case mix. People are moving more and more towards getting convenient care, outpatient versus inpatient, they're seeking out easier, cheaper, more convenient options. And that, that case mix is shifting. And some of that's driven just by technology in general. Through time, over history, what used to be this massive procedure and you were in the hospital forever and you may or may not make it, you know, kind of a deal, is like 35 minutes in the morning and you'll sit in recovery for a little bit, make sure you're okay, don't have any bad reactions, and like you're home by lunchtime. I mean, even labor and delivery has become that way, right? And if it's a quote-unquote normal experience on the labor and delivery side, you're you're probably going to go home the next day. Where it used to be like, you know, several days and this, that, and the other. So some of it is just we've gotten better at what we do. The medications have gotten better. The technology's gotten better. Laparoscopic procedures versus having to cut you open. You know, things like that attribute to that obviously shift in case mix and the shift to outpatient procedures. That's right. Let me list some of the other factors. Fading regulatory protections. And then you couple that with market fragmentation. There are more choices. Now there's more competition competition that's convenient. And we hear about hospitals and health systems even partnering with local hospitals to provide a network of care so they could create a clinically integrated network or a close network. You see that it used to be like, wow, there's there's an urgent care, a walk-in clinic on every corner. And there still are. But then we got into this business of like freestanding ERs. And now there are freestanding ERs everywhere. You know, and now it's like we have an urgent care clinic, a walk-in clinic that's pediatric focused. It's like it used to have one place to go. Now it's like, what's the closest place? And then two other things too, payer scrutiny on value. We talk a lot about value-based care. More and more of our payer shift is going to be focusing on value and reimbursements. And that's happening. We're in the midst of that transition. I I would say that hospitals are one foot in, still the old fee-for-service model, but they're moving more and more towards you know, population health management, making sure that there's a value in terms of the care that's being delivered. And there's a lot of questions and unknowns around that. And then the last one is whatever side of the policy that you're on, the policy pushes more and more towards individual choice in the marketplace, more and more emphasis on the consumer making that individual choice about where they can get the best care. Yep. Those six factors right there define the challenges of the industry and basically set up a formula where consumerism in healthcare is a very complex thing to tackle. That means we should stop doing it, right? We shouldn't forget about it and not do it anymore. I'm moving to a different industry. This is complicated. You know, to that end, what hospitals and health systems have to do is really focus on a version of healthcare consumerism that they could actually tackle and take on. For that, we actually turned to a study from Kaufman Hall on healthcare consumerism. The study itself focuses on three concepts to understand where we need to start to shift the landscape of healthcare to become more consumeristic. The first is around prioritizing and building consumer-centric services. Uh, some of that you just can't do. 
For some of the services, they're just, that's what they are. And I don't know how you make them more consumer centric necessarily, but I think the important part, which is to prioritize, do have some consumer centric services or some that lend themselves, I guess, more to that part of the equation than others. So how do you build those out and prioritize them? Secondly, align strategies with consumers' priorities. That gets a little tricky. You know, that means we're relying on consumers to set the priority on something that they may or may not be as first in. That is true. And it also means that you have to understand what those priorities and preferences are, which is also the other side of the equation that's hard to, to challenge. That's why we talk a lot about voice of customer and getting a good understanding of the experience because we have to understand what their priorities are through segmentation, through understanding their preferences, so that we can start to align our strategies with those priorities. And that doesn't mean that consumer priorities drive strategy, business strategy in hospitals, but it certainly means we have to align. And that really applies to the third focus of healthcare consumerism, which is applying contemporary practices and access experience and pricing to become Mm -hmm. more healthcare consumeristic, so to speak. So access, experience, and pricing. You know, I think we do more and more on the access front because uh, mm-hmm. Ford mentioned freestanding ERs and you know, that type of thing. So, I mean, we're, we're obviously always looking at how do we create more access points. But I think some of the other ones are a little bit harder, like we've talked about around pricing and things like that. Let's spoiler alert this study. Why don't we ping through some of the conclusions that they found? The first one, they said there are significant gaps between priorities and capabilities. Big surprise there, right? Few hospital health systems have the capabilities to achieve consumer-first strategies, particularly in digital consumer engagement. Digital Mm -hmm. initiatives often are disconnected from the broad consumer engagement strategies that hospitals are doing. That would make sense. I mean, it'll catch up. It has to. But I see where it's obviously that deficit as we stand here today. Part of what they're saying, too, is digital is ahead of the curve here, that if you're doing digital marketing in hospitals, you're already operating in a consumeristic way. But sometimes you may be outpacing what the internal strategies are around consumerism. Or the comfort level, if nothing else. Secondly, uh, organizational value propositions are out of sync with the consumer. There's a real lack of alignment between the factors that they see as that differentiation and what they perceive consumers value most. So basically what we like versus what they want. If you think about traditional supply and demand and consumerism, you create supply to match the demand. In this particular case, what they're saying is in healthcare, we don't know what the demand is. Well, we might know in some cases like some of the demands, but we don't know what the preferences are to get there. So here's another finding they found. Hospitals are inconsistent and slow to expand access to consumers via non-traditional care options. And we talked about this, urgent care centers, retail care clinics. A lot of times these initiatives to expand access in these other areas, such as like same day appointments or even telehealth, virtual visits, that sort of thing, are still early implementation for a lot of hospitals. They're not systemic. They're not part of the traditional care pathway. You know, how do we feel about that? Because there are some organizations out there like Cancer Treatment Centers of America, for example. They offer acupuncture. They have like a farm out behind one of their hospitals. And so there's a whole dietary push around, you know, organic or I'm probably underselling it a little bit, but 
Mm-hmm. They do some of what we would consider, quote, I'm using air quotes, we in hospitals would consider non-traditional deliveries. I mean, if you went to most acute care hospitals around the country and are like, you know, I'd like to add acupuncture, they'd be like, eh, I don't know about massage and acupuncture and that kind of thing in some of these areas. That seems counter to what we've historically done. Can I take it even one step more controversial, Reed? In some states in the United States, they're experimenting with marijuana as being part of the care treatment. And that is something that is, it just makes everyone freak out because on a federal level, that's illegal, while on a state level, it can work. And I remember I worked for a hospital system once where the CEO of the hospital even said, I am open to exploring clinical applications of marijuana and THC. And he says, but don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean I'm advocating to grow pot plants on the roof of my hospital. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or when uh can't like, you know, smoke a joint on the loading dock. That's not what we're talking about here. We haven't yeah. But yeah, so I mean that that's interesting uh you know, conclusion there as well. You know, another conclusion, uh, organizations have a narrow view of the consumer experience. The default for many organizations is to be reactive in responding to consumer experience issues. So we're waiting to hear oh, they had an issue here, or this was a problem, or you know, whatever it is, whether it be wait time or parking, or actually in the care setting itself, we're being more reactive versus going out, trying to find, identify, and prevent a lot of that stuff. We talked about this with the transparency initiatives and bringing press gainy scores online. That was actually a very proactive way that a digital team try to address understanding consumer preferences and that has driven so many changes operationally organizationally from a care delivery perspective and also from a marketing perspective but you know they were out ahead of that and i recall at the time when i was working in a hospital that was looking at this we had to be very careful because press gainey actually forbade you from asking certain questions prior to their survey right how could you be proactive it's almost like preventing you from being proactive and that's one that I think is changing pretty quick. One of our sponsors, Loyal Health, they've created a whole business around this because this is becoming more and more important to folks. Two more findings. So let me get the first one here. Consumer insights are incomplete and applied inconsistency, if at all. We're relying too much on outdated methodologies and analytics to get us feedback. The aforementioned Prescani, you know, HCAPs, CCAP scores. Also, many providers are using multiple means to gather consumer insights, but those aren't comprehensive. And rarely are they consistently applied across the organization. And then finally, pricing strategy is a blind spot for many. I say for most. Efforts to provide price transparency are particularly sparse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, they are. Everybody I talked to was like, oh, yeah, that'd be neat. That's kind of the end of that conversation. (laughs) Putting price transparency on the website. And certain folks are doing it, but that is not an easy one to do. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. 
It makes me think about something, Reed, that we've talked about before, but I really want to kind of hit the nail on the head this time. When we talk about marketing, have you heard about the four P's of marketing? I am a marketing major from Texas Tech University. I'm pretty sure this is in most of my textbooks. The traditional four P's of marketing are product, price, placement, and promotion. Obviously, that you know means a lot of different things. But you can kind of fill that in based on whatever industry you're in. What's our product? What are we selling? Is it a service? Is it an actual something that sits on a shelf? You know, how much does that cost? And then we kind of move into what in healthcare we've spent the majority of our time on, which is placement to some degree, but primarily promotion in hospitals specifically. You know, we always used to joke that, like, instead of being the director of marketing, you're really the director of advertising. You should call it the advertising department, not the marketing department. We've had little to no input for varying reasons and, and probably for some good reasons and some bad reasons. But we don't have any input on the product. A- at all, hardly. We certainly don't have any input on the price. I mean, when was the last time you went to, like, a senior leader meeting at a hospital like, hey... Uh, Before we break, I'd like to uh, touch on how much we charge for joint replacement procedures. Everybody look at you like, I'm sorry, what now? Who is this guy? What's he doing? Those are areas, though, that I do hear from some folks, especially as we look at access-related products, so urgent care, freestanding ERs, things like that, people are doing a little bit more around the strategic planning side and, and contributing to that dialogue. Because most hospitals, now big hospitals, big systems even, have people in the strategic planning roles. But that's going to fall to you know a lot of folks that are the director of marketing if it's a, a smaller regional acute care hospital. In the traditional marketing sense, placement is... They're buying more of X widget from this location. We need to inform back to our supply channel that we need more of these widgets in this particular location. But from a hospital perspective, only now just starting to get involved in that, to start to understand what that demand is. Quite frankly, some of the best CRM tools traditionally have been coming from strategic planning where they actually could tell you where the market demand is for different areas. Now we're getting more and more, we're starting to see that stuff merge together finally. When we talk about the four P's of marketing, it's just really interesting because those are set up in a traditional sense to address consumerism. We're only now as an industry starting to get to that point. Another thing, Reed, that I want to talk about is uh, outside technology companies like Loyal, like some of these others that are coming in from the outside, they're bringing in outside consumeristic ideas into healthcare. There's a couple different things. I think there are the technology disruptors that are uh, proactively or maybe, maybe not proactively, but intentionally trying to impact healthcare. And then you've got the folks that have created a piece of technology that accidentally bumps into healthcare. Every rating and review site for one. So, you know, Angie's List is a great one. They didn't set out to make that about healthcare or rating doctors or whatever. That just kind of happened. From an employment standpoint, similar to Angie's List, I guess you've got things like Glassdoor. Again, not created uh, in the sense that like, hey, we're going to go fix or impact or disrupt healthcare. But then on the flip side, you do have some of those technologies that are more from a consumer standpoint, you know, that those products were developed specifically for hospitals and it was to disrupt pricing transparency, physician tra- you know, quality metrics online, you know, just that whole transparency initiative. You know, we kind of got two sides to, to the same thing. Now, sometimes they're bringing in disruption in such a way that is almost too rapid for organizations to address, but other times it may 
strike the right chord. We've talked about this all the time, Reed. Consumers are bringing those expectations in to the healthcare setting. So this could be good and this could also be bad. What helps a lot is for people like us and people like us at the organizations and hospitals and things like that to kind of help level set right expectations. And that's why we see a lot of times the technology companies that actually are making meaningful progress get a lot of insight from those of us that have worked or are working currently within hospitals and health systems. It's an interesting viewpoint of you know how they impacting and consumers are driving a lot of the ask or the need because you do see things like you know the expectations around I mean that's where being able to pay your bill online came from or schedule things, whether that be appointments or sign up for classes, you know, search through directories. We didn't come up with that. Like healthcare didn't come up with that. People did that other places and whether directly or indirectly, somebody went out and went, you know what, I'm going to build this and sell it to all the hospitals. In that case, I think that's good. Do you remember back in our healthcare internet conference we actually asked that question in a, in a certain extent around who is in charge of digital transformation. And we had a lot of different answers. A lot of people came up with different answers. They talked about physicians maybe driving it or administrators or marketers from within. Even technology to some degree. I think everybody, depending on what role they play within the organization at times, kind of has a little bit of a different viewpoint on that. I think that's mm-hmm. how we ultimately get something that works uh, for everybody. And one person that was in the audience that actually made a comment, Gary Frazier. He's actually the person we're interviewing later on in this podcast, and he's got a unique take on it. And it actually, he talks about consumerism and healthcare, how what his perspective is on it, and how that kind of led to the creation of his company, which is OM Healthcare. Good interview. So give it a listen. This is a podcast about digital and digital marketing, digital patient experience, and digital transformation. And when we define digital transformation, there's really four areas. This came out in episode one. We were talking about the four different areas where we could really transform digital in this space. And it might be good for us to kind of talk about how healthcare consumerism might be impacting each one of these four legs. So I'll take the first leg, which is around the culture and the people. A lot of times we talk about consumerism or being consumer first is a mental mindset. You have to reshift the way you think. It's how you engage with people when you're providing them care. It's how you uh, provide your variety of different services, be it someone on the loaning dock to someone doing the website for a hospital or health system. You have to really start to shift your mind to say, we're really focusing on being consumer first. And sometimes that's hard, you know, particularly if you're talking to people that don't really think of themselves as impacting that patient experience. When we talk about culture and people being part of the the change of consumerism, trying to address consumerism, that could be a very big internal mind shift that has to occur that takes time to do. Yeah, and that's why you see those programmatic offerings along those lines, whether that's from the Suter Group or the Baptist Leadership Group. You see the books like if Disney ran my hospital, and mm-hmm. because culture mm-hmm. is such a big deal, and that's really what we're doing. It's you know people dealing with people. Secondly, technology that is probably the straightest line mm-hmm. that we can draw. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, in this digital transformation piece as it relates to consumerism, the technology evolving to meet the needs and expectations. Uh, of the consumer. Underlying that, though, is a data and analytic layer. It's not only providing the right tools and technologies, being able to take all the data and analytics and tracking all your different touch points across the digital landscape 
And using that in a way that can inform and become business intelligence can help you start to optimize experiences, bring them closer to the point of care, make that experience easier and being able to measure that. So data and analytics is a critical part of this. Finally, uh, processes. I mean, that's kind of pulling all of this together. But is, you know, how does this look and act and, you know, you know, how do we do it? This has got to be a pretty big emphasis within the organization to really continue to address consumerism. People may or may not have, have heard Steve Jobs say it's really hard to design products by focus groups. A lot of times people don't know what they want until you show it to them. You don't know it till you see it. Think about the iPod, think about the car, think about the iPhone. You know, I remember when I, I sold cell phones once upon a time, and the greatest thing ever was this flip phone called the Motorola StarTac. <laughs> and it was pretty amazing. Man, this, it has like a holster, and you can put it on your belt. And I mean, it's just you know, it's what every businessman carried. Think about where we are now. The phone I carry out of my pocket has more processing power than like my dad's business when I was growing up. So would it be fair to say that we're at the stage of healthcare consumerism where we still think it's cool to wear cell phones on holsters on our belt hey chris before we go too much further jump into this next segment of the podcast i did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors influence health uh, you know they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things and correct me if i'm wrong but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast yeah we did what about crms Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else. They've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems. Kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Hi, my name is Peter Gailey, and I'm with Broadcast Med, and I am happy to introduce to you the Touchpoint Counter Retouch Point Counterpoint Touch. Touchpoint Touch Counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! So we're at Touchpoint Touch Counterpoint portion of the podcast, and we will be arguing today, do consumers, I guess, really know what they want? A good example is, should we, the healthcare providers, build freestanding ERs, urgent care clinics, whatever service offering, you can fill in the blank, because we think that's the best option, or are we building those because of what we have determined to be consumer demand and what they want? So we're going to take extreme opposites of this. And by the way, this is very similar to the voice of the customer touch point, touch counterpoint, if people want to go back to our original argument. And I actually am going to side on the fact that consumers actually, with all the lack of transparency that we provide in this space, consumers still have the knowledge and insight as to what they want. And so therefore, we should let consumers drive our strategies, prioritizations, and types of delivery, all of those things should come from the consumer. I don't think so. Here's the problem with that. I don't think as a whole people know what they need as well as we like to believe. 
I mean, I think it'd be great if they could provide us and talk to us about everything, but everything from the clinical training, they have not had that all the way through. There's reasons, you know, care is delivered the way it is. Could it be better? So I think we've got to be careful about rolling back to just what consumers want versus what we feel like is best in the overall ecosystem of of healthcare delivery. I'm not arguing the fact that we as healthcare professionals and the clinical side of the house of physicians know better about how care can be treated. What I'm talking about, though, is consumers should be able to necessitate and even drive prioritization in how they experience said services. So for example, if the doctor says, you have to go through this MRI and uh, you have to, you know, you have to show up on this day to go to your MRI because it's when we have it available. We should, in the very least, make it as easy and convenient to the consumer and address consumerism wrapped around that particular touch point of care. Because, quite frankly, if you show up and then you have to sit in the waiting room for forty minutes and then you and you have this MRI and then you don't get the lab results for three weeks, that's not a good experience. Sure, and I'm not arguing that, but I think the idea here is is that, and I've heard people say this: it's like, oh, don't go to that walk-in clinic or that urgent care clinic, they don't even have doctors there. They only have physician assistants. Yeah, but okay, they're swabbing you for the flu. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, I could do that. I can swab you for the flu and then have the test run and then tell you whether or not you have it or not. So we're allowing them to make this care decision of this is not the way this should be done. Whereas we're saying this is absolutely the way it should be done because what you need to use this for is these convenience-related scenarios of why you would go to an urgent care clinic versus a hospital versus, you know, your physician's office. You run down this kind of dangerous path that way. I guess what you're arguing, though, is a little bit on my side, which is you want to educate and inform the consumers enough so they can make intelligent choices in their care decisions. And is that what you're saying? Yeah, I know you absolutely need to educate them so they can make the right decisions. But I still think you have those individuals that are always going to have this idea idea that they know better. Of course. I mean, that that's that old adage of the customer is always right, except for when they aren't. A lot of organizations, retail and otherwise, have figured that out. Or you can't take a philosophical approach based on that exception to the rule. I would say that in general, if you have a better understanding of what your consumers' wants are, what their needs are, it can really help you prioritize and shift the way you, quote unquote, build out your services. Yeah, except for we end up with yeah, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And so you get people that want certain things and quote unquote need certain things. And if that's all you're hearing, you may be falsely informed from the consumer side of the equation that this would be a great thing to have. And then ultimately you're like, I built it. Nobody's coming. What's the, what's the problem here? hundred percent agree with you on that because you don't want to shift your entire culture based on one person's input. You have to have enough data to say that this is actually a trend that warrants us to take a look at it for sure. You can't have that one squeaky wheel get the grease, so to speak, in this space because you're going to constantly be playing whack-a-mole with your care delivery. I think we're kind of converging arguments here a little bit around educating folks and then measuring and monitoring and getting feedback to try to be more consumer centric. You do want to be consumer centric, but understanding that, you know, in a lot of cases you hold the majority of the expertise 
their experience is onesies and twosies. Yours experience is in the thousands because right. you're doing it every day. You've got to have enough feedback from folks that you can measure that against what you're seeing as well. And you also have to understand the data enough to maybe even predict trends that could potentially shift the way you deliver care in the future. I'm thinking back to all the people that they implemented online physician reviews through Prescani and they started to get comments and those comments actually drove changes within the organization. So you got to understand how to interpret that data, how to apply that data the right way. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. Today, Reed and I have been talking about consumerism in healthcare, and our conversations today reminded me of a conversation I had with a gentleman I met a couple of weeks back at the Healthcare Internet Conference in Austin, Texas, and that's a gentleman by the name of Gary Frazier, and I thought if we want to talk to an expert in this particular topic, Gary is the right man to talk to. Gary's with Ohm Healthcare. And I want to welcome you to the podcast today, Gary. How are you? Great, great. How are you? I'm doing really good. Gary, you and I had a chance to talk deeply about this topic at dinner one night when we were enjoying a really nice steak dinner. And it, and while we were having that conversation, I was really impressed by your background. Can you give a little introduction to the listeners of our podcast and tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah. First, I like to say I'm a recovering hospital administrator. I started out actually back in the early, I guess, 2000s in healthcare real estate, believe it or not, is how I broke into healthcare after getting my MBA. But after doing strategy for uh, health systems around the country, around their real estate needs, it really intrigued me the most to learn about the strategies that were driving those real estate decisions. And that's how I was able to ultimately parlay uh, myself into a, a hospital administrator job, starting as a vice president at what was then Catholic Healthcare West and now as Dignity Health here in California. And that's where I really cut my teeth um, as a VP of strategy and business development. And then from there, I had various and sundry roles as a chief strategy officer in Chicago and a few other um, health system jobs uh, since then. It gave me a a good purview of the healthcare universe, as, as it were, because it was my job to be I will say the entrepreneurial mind in the executive suite, you know, bringing together the hospitals and the, and, and the health plans and the medical groups to create what we call integrated delivery systems so that we could all try to be like Kaiser or something like it. So that was my day job, which was uh, physician recruitment, alignment, all things strategy, all things business planning and the above. And then that brought you to Ohm Healthcare. Let's talk a little bit about what Ohm Healthcare does. And why is this driven by this idea of consumerism in healthcare? The idea of OM first came to me roughly two years ago now in 2015. I was actually doing a talk at an executive MHA program at USC. And it was about the third time I did that talk. And I have a few slides at the end of my talk where I get to just basically pontificate and and share my own personal thoughts outside of the technical speak. One of my slides was titled The Uberfication of Healthcare. You know, it was a beautiful slide with lots of logos from Amazon and Yelp and Airbnb and such. And and I would start by saying, you know, one day somebody's going to figure out how to Uberfy healthcare. And in order to do that, they really have to, you know, meet all of these various consumer uh, requirements like on demand and transparency and everything in app. You know, all the things that we see in our normal, um, I'll say, economy that's outside of healthcare. 
And as I was saying that for the third time, you know, the last time I spoke, it all kind of just came together in my mind, I would say, that that was the answer to solving the big problem of healthcare in America, simply put, to empower the consumer. You know, using that, I kind of backed all the way out and said, well, if I weren't trying to fix the existing system, if I just created one from scratch, what would it look like and how would it work best? I couldn't ever get around in all of my strategizing and thinking, you know, and the knowledge that I had about how the current system operated, I couldn't get around the fact that the patient in our system is the most important stakeholder in our system, but the most powerless. It just occurred to me that if I could solve it for that one stakeholder, it would fix it for everyone else. The name OM stands for open market. OM is open market. And so that was driven by the idea that we could create an open market or free market type of system for healthcare the way it is for the rest of our economy. I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of shifting the focus of the system onto the actual customer. And we talk about that a lot in this space, but that's a big challenge. When we talk about consumerism in healthcare, often a lot of people say, well, the consumer doesn't really know what they want or doesn't really understand the health system. First of all, the people who say that are absolutely right. The consumer doesn't know. But I would argue one, the consumer doesn't know because they've been left in the dark for the last 30, almost 40 years in our current third-party payment system where you really don't have any transparency. You don't know what things cost before you buy them. You don't understand the value to price connection. Because of the third-party payment system, we have essentially allowed the illiteracy or the consumer mindset to atrophy because they haven't been able to really flex their muscle in healthcare. So that's why they're right. But that also points to the answer. It doesn't mean that they aren't the ones with the power. So I always think about the Matrix trilogy. You've got Neo, they walk in, Orpheus offers him a red or a blue pill because he's been living in this veiled dream state where he didn't know what he didn't know. And it was hard for him to believe that he was more than he really was or as powerful as he really was. And so I see the consumers in healthcare much like Neo, where I think that we as healthcare experts have the ability to walk in with a red or blue pill and basically offer the consumer the red pill to say, look, you are the most powerful person here. And yeah, it's gonna be rocky in the beginning. You know, there's a lot of things that you don't know, but I think it's our responsibility. Again, healthcare experts on, on all sides, that's the doctors, the physician side, the hospital side, the payer side, you name it. It's our jobs ultimately to empower that consumer with the education and the knowledge and the know-how, and then to let go and trust that they will be able to navigate and find their own way to ultimately be able to wield the power that they really have to change our system. One of the things that really jumped out at me is actually asking our industry to trust the patient to navigate our system and navigate the complexities of our system. When Steve Jobs famously said the consumer doesn't really know, or you can even go back to saying Henry Ford saying, if you ask the consumer what they wanted, they would, you know, horses that run 10 times faster or something like that. How do you feel that consumers in this space can be better empowered to make decisions so that they are actually more educated? 
a few things have to happen. One, we in the system have to let go of our old traditional ways. And also, I would say all the control that we have, we're doing lots of things to satisfy our own interests. And that hasn't worked well for us because obviously there's misaligned incentives inside the system. And it definitely doesn't work well for ultimately the consumer. And so the first step is to be brave enough to walk away from what is to create something that should be and ultimately whatever that thing is it needs to make it easier for the consumer so that's step one for those of us that have the knowledge and the expertise to create an easier better method or way or system step two back to the consumer you're right again they don't know and so it means we have to meet them where they are and then I'll say carefully walk them out of where they are to where they should be. So where they are now is they are in a very murky, dark, veiled place with our system because they just don't know. They, it's healthcare illiteracy as we call it, right? We've got to meet them where they are, which is, you know, if we just focus just on the commercial side of the business, the other half of our population that receives their healthcare from an employer, that is a group where the rules, I would say, are flexible enough to where if we work with the employers and we work with the employees, we could create some real innovative and forward-thinking and consumer-centric models that could be tested, piloted, tried out, that would move us in the right direction. So I guess what I'm saying is we make it easy, but then we have to go to where they are in order to move them away and into, I'll say, a better world. I'm not ready to give up. I agree that they probably want faster horses or they think they would. I do think that the new generation, they haven't yet been indoctrinated yet. They haven't yet been they locked in like maybe a boomer generation where they just wouldn't, it'd be really hard to walk them out. If you have a, a group of young people that are just now having babies, they're just entering the health system for the first time outside of their parents' insurance, they are still malleable. We can still mold their young minds around a new way of doing things. And I really feel like that's the way to go, is to go further upstream with that population so that we can reshape what the future looks like, even if we lose a few of the older generation. You're probably one of the first experts that ever has said something positive about the millennial generation in healthcare. So let's just note that for the podcast records there. The thing that I think about, though, is Oftentimes when people talk about engaging the millennial generation, digital seems to be one of the ways that many experts say is a platform or a technology that can actually help solve this problem. What's your perspective on the role of digital in this new era of consumerism? I have mixed feelings and they're not bad, they're just mixed. I believe that digital is the key to unlock the door because that's where they are. This generation is the first generation really to be born using cell phones and tablets and the like. That's their world, that's their life, and, and we have to basically step into that if we think we wanna reach them. So that's the key. However, when you're talking about something as complex and as personal as healthcare, a digital solution by itself will not do the trick alone. This is a personal, and I will say mostly at this stage, an economic dilemma. 
You know, the reason employers are doing what they're doing by moving more and more into high deductible plans to shift the cost, it's an economic issue. The reason that healthcare is the biggest debate in our country even is an economic reason because the costs continue to go up and up and up, sometimes 10 to 12% year over year for the employer. And then for people who um, are employed, they now have some cost decisions to make, not just during open enrollment, but beyond that. If you have a high deductible plan, you're out of pocket up to five, six, sometimes $7,000 before your insurance even kicks in. So I think that to only use digital without addressing the economic changes that need to be addressed, you'll fall short and um, you'll you'll be a mile wide, as they say, and, and an inch deep versus the other way around. I think um, you have to marry a digital solution with an economic redesign of our existing system in order for it to work. Now, you and I also talked about the impact that the technology industry is having in healthcare and how the disruption of technology is coming into, into our space and how that may or may not fit with this new era of consumerism and and, and some of the the principles that we're we're talking about today. I may talk a bit about just kind of my my company a little bit, but if you look at Airbnb, for example, and this is just using another industry, you have a company that was started eight years ago and and they have today 1.5 plus million listings, which makes them larger than the Marriott, which is more than 60 years old. And they did that in eight short years. And it wasn't one thing. I mean, yes, it was the the new technology on the internet that allows for creating matchmaker platforms, brings renters and rentees together, or in Ubers and Lyfts you know, situation, it brings riders and drivers together. So you have this technology innovation that makes things possible. But then you also have the generational shift that we just talked about with the millennials who are comfortable getting in strangers' cars, for example. So they did it first, and then the rest of us that are Xers and boomers follow suit. But then on top of that, you had kind of an economic impact uh, in the 2008-2009 meltdown there, which now you have this confluence of technology, a generational shift, as well as, uh, you know, the population who is tech savvy are also very frugal because they just lived through one of the biggest downturns in economic history. And so they, and they were raised through that. And so you have this perfect storm that really plays well for disrupting multiple industries. Now apply that to healthcare. It makes it right for healthcare, but you have to be able to take it one step deeper because healthcare is managed by the probably the biggest middleman of any business, and that is third-party payers. And in having that system in place, it not only separates the, the buyer from the seller, or in this case, patients from doctors, it also keeps us in this high-cost, highly, I'll say, bureaucratic system that almost needs to feed itself. And therefore, it defeats itself because of a system that has to do what it has to do to stay alive. I just feel like the incentives aren't there, the economic incentives aren't there for any of the stakeholders to look forward to any change and to do anything outside of their current technology spending, which is really self-serving in that they're building EHR systems that ultimately create more silos because every system has its own system and every doctor's office has its own system. And so there's no connectivity, which defeats the whole purpose of technology. 
we have to move that back to Airbnb, a decentralized system that allows for ultimate connectivity with the consumer. For a second there, I thought you were getting a little too bleak and painting a, a bad picture of the future, but then pivoted there at the end, which seems really positive and assuring that by creating this open system, it actually can create a really nice platform for transformation in our industry. Tell us a little bit about how you feel Ohm Healthcare is playing in that space. So the beautiful part about the matchmaker technology platform and, and all of that, like I mentioned with Airbnb, is that Airbnb didn't have to own real estate in order to become bigger than the Marriott. Uber and Lyft did not have to own cars or hire drivers, you know, in order to to take out and disrupt the taxi business. So if you can apply the same mindset to a healthcare market in order to leverage this technology, I don't have to go out and employ doctors. The doctors are there and the doctors want to serve patients. And in fact, the doctors would rather not deal with a third-party payment system if you ask most of them. I don't have to build hospitals because hospitals today are already bypassing the third-party payment system in what is called direct-to-employer. If you're talking to large systems in the Northwest, they're working with Boeing. You're talking to large systems um, you know, in the Midwest, they're probably working with Walmart and some other large employers, and those employers are negotiating direct to employer deals that are somewhere around 30, 50% lower than a going PPO discount rate, which is amazing. But that's for you know large ticket, you know, acute care, procedural items. I get it. The point is, is that it's happening. So now if you apply, which is what Ohm Healthcare does, a technology platform that connects consumers in a consumer direct environment to the providers and you've created this marketplace where you've got, let's just say, you know, we're looking out into the future and we've got uh, 50, 100,000 uh, members or subscribers on the Ohm Healthcare platform in Southern California. Well, collectively, we now build the same kind of leverage that a large employer does in that market, which means that the large medical groups are, that are affiliated or unaffiliated, the large health systems that have centers of excellences around, you know, major joints or heart procedures, they're going to be willing to offer to that marketplace what I call cash-based pricing, non-third-party payer pricing for all the same reasons they already do it. And that's because you've eliminated the overhead associated with pre-qualification, billing, collecting, the, the possibility of real denials. And so you've taken out the revenue cycle piece of it and the claims processing piece of it. And therefore, you've taken out the cost. So now they can basically just say it costs us to do, to do this this much and we want this much margin. And then the pricing is simple. You're back to economics 101. So that's on the surface. So I, I'm going to stop there because, you know, it, obviously healthcare is complex and there's a lot of other, uh, I'll say, bells and whistles and mechanics to it. But on the surface, we're talking about becoming the Airbnb of healthcare by creating a consumer direct environment for healthcare. If people want to learn more about Ohm Healthcare, what's a good place that we can direct them to? Our website is uh, www.ohmhealthcare.com. There's even a, a short three minute video. It's a whiteboard video that briefly explains the overall concept from the consumer perspective. Starting in December, we're, we'll, we'll start to have some of our live focus groups that we've caught on camera talking through some of these consumer-focused issues and also consumer-forward-thinking ideas around what they really want and how they uh, want to experience the healthcare system. Well, looking forward to that, Gary, and we'll definitely put links in our show notes to your website 
and also LinkedIn and your Twitter accounts so people can kind of follow you on the social channels too. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're wrapping up our podcast episode. We want to thank Gary Frazier for his great expert insight in our discussion on consumerism today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Uh, It was a good episode, Reed. I really enjoyed talking through some of these nuances. Good stuff. Again, a reminder, if you're hearing this today, we're doing a webinar for the Mayo Clinic social media network on podcasting. Just navigate over to socialmedia.mayoclinic.org. Check that out. Also, be sure to make your way over to iTunes, write and review us and subscribe. So here we are. Recommendations. What do you got? Well, Reed, I, I always fear recommending a podcast Uh-oh. to our audience because, you know, I want them to be loyal to us and listen to us every week. But I'm a podcast listener, just like you are. Yes. And I came across one over the last couple of weeks that I just started listening to. And I really find it to be superb and very interesting. It comes out maybe once a week. It's called Crooked Conversations. It's from the guys that do Crooked Media. And Crooked Media's biggest podcast right now is Pod Save America, which a lot of people listen to. It's like top on iTunes right now. They occasionally talk to some really interesting people. And so the Crooked Conversations is like sort of an in-depth conversation with a certain individual on a particular topic. And the topics span between media bias to a variety of different things. One of the episodes that was really interesting was around breast cancer awareness and the Mm. business of breast cancer awareness and sort of how Susan G. Komen changed the industry and how it suddenly became, you know, October is the month of pink. Everybody has something pink. And they even talked about how there was a fracking drill bit that was branded as pink for breast cancer awareness. (laughs) A fracking drill bit. Honestly, true. It was really interesting. And then the most recent episode was around the politicization of the NFL. And they looked at the NFL itself and what's happening at the NFL and all the different factors, not only political, but also social and economic factors that are transforming the way the NFL is actually being perceived and actually performing in the industry. It's really interesting. You go deep. It's about 45 minutes long each episode and just, you know, really interesting topics. Obviously, it skews a little bit more liberal, but very much interesting and worth hearing. And what's it called again? It's called Crooked Conversations. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, this I mentioned last, I think I mentioned last time around or in a recent episode, I bought some foam acoustic panels because, you know, we're really taking this podcasting thing serious and I need a better tone, uh, less echo. I don't know, whatever you want to call it on my voice. And so found some on Amazon, get 12 of them. They're 12 by 12 panels. And so you can make a nice sound deadening for your studio. Uh, it would be even handy just in your office or home office or wherever. See a little more sound deadening for just because you're on conference calls all the time or you know whatever it may be. So just kind of playing around with those, seeing how I want to position them. See, I can get the biggest bang for my buck out of them. But 12 by 12 acoustic you can get them in different colors. Cool. Get artsy with them. Yeah, you can actually make them art on the yeah. wall. Great recommendation, Reed. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. And again, thank you all. We look forward to conversing with you online. He is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. 